Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm April Dimbaski. For decades, doctors and parents focused on treating autism as a disease. Nonprofits steered millions of dollars into finding a cure instead of providing services to autistic people. Political journalist Eric Garcia chronicles that history in his new book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. And he draws on his own experience as an autistic person to lay out the ongoing challenges and misperceptions autistic people face. We talk with Garcia about why autism is so misunderstood and how to change the narrative. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm April Dimbaski, in for Mina Kim. As a political journalist, Eric Garcia was not accustomed to turning his reporter's eye on himself. But several years ago, he wrote an article about being an autistic journalist in Washington, D.C., a piece that sparked the desire to do more reporting on autism. The result is a new book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. It tackles longstanding misconceptions about autism, including stereotypes that autistic people are good at coding software or can't hold down full-time jobs or need to be cured. Garcia interviews dozens of autistic people and writes about his own experience to break down these stereotypes. He is a Latino, college-educated autistic man who makes his living working with words. He is a senior Washington, D.C. correspondent for The Independent and previously worked for The Washington Post, The Hill, National Journal, and Market Watch. And now he's the author of We're Not Broken. Eric Garcia, welcome to Forum. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so excited to have you. Your book is a combination of reporting and memoir. And I'd like to start off with just a little bit of your story. How old were you when you realized you were autistic? And how did your early experience correspond with the the cultural narrative around autism that, that dominated at that time? Yeah. So, I mean, I knew that there was this concept of what was then called Asperger syndrome. I didn't know that it was an offshoot of autism spectrum, just of what, was, what was then autism, you know, considered autism or was considered high functioning autism. I must've been like nine or 10 or eight or nine or when like I, that, that, that word entered my kind of lexicon. Um, or my, or my vocabulary, but you know, you don't really care about that when you're nine or 10, you just care that uh, people think you're weird. Um, 
So, I mean, but it wasn't really until my teens that uh, I started seeing more of it, I think, in pop culture. And this was around the time, like, so I was a teenager around 2005 to 2000, you know, so that was when I turned 15. So that was around the time when you started to see things like Autism Speaks and a lot of nonprofits start to pop up for autism. And it really kind of became this cause to... For, 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 for wealthy elites to focus on, we're gonna fight autism, we're gonna combat it. So there were television specials and telethons and uh, nonprofit fundraisers and charity walks and things like that. And what it did is that it really, I think set in my mind that this is something that needed to be combated. Literally the piece of legislation that passed in 2006 was called the Combating Autism Act. So it was seen as this is a thing that needs to be fixed. And that is that how you experienced it as a as a child? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I write about this in the book that like the first two real experiences that I had about seeing it in pop culture. One was when I was watching a PSA and it had like a lot of members of like heavy metal bands and rock and roll bands talking about, you know, as one is one in 66 children was diagnosed and it's it's affects more children than type one diabetes and childhood cancer type two diabetes and childhood cancer and cystic fibrosis and it goes undiagnosed and like work with us to put an end to autism and then uh so 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 like that was it said in my mind that there was this a it said that oh wow there are these people who care about me but b it's like oh this thing that i have is this malady I don't think I even registered it at the time. It's like, oh, but this thing is this malady that needs to be fixed. It needs to be cured. And that, when you set it in, excuse me, when you set it in someone's mind that way, then it, it, it's, it says that they're sick. It says that they're flawed or they're failures uh, and that uh, neurotypical society is going to save them or cure them, so to speak. And and when what was your experience as you became aware of this and when this was really occurring to you that this was the wrong narrative? Do you remember particular experience growing up where yeah, you yeah. tapped into that? Yeah, I mean, I think the way that it first started to change was um, around that same time. I think I. Uh, you know, I remember I watched an interview on CNN with the late Mel Bax, who was an autistic advocate and activist, um, God rest their soul. Uh, but it was there was an interview with them on Dr. Sanjay, on CNN with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And I remember what was fascinating to me was that Mel Bags uh, was, I, mean, I think, yeah, that was their name, Mel Bags. Uh, they had this video called In My Language, and they were talking about... Uh, you know, they, 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 you know, it was fascinating because Mel couldn't speak, had limited speaking capacity, but at the same time, uh, I noticed so many, you know, similarities. Uh, so, 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 uh, so, so that was, um, so that was, so that was what stood out to me was how similar we were, even though there were people would say that, oh, this person's high functioning, this person's low functioning. Later on, I think it was when I went to school, when I went to live in Washington, D.C. as an intern when I was 20, and I realized that there were other autistic people and other 
and there were other people on the spectrum. And I think what, what ultimately sealed it was I was going to write this piece for National Journal. Initially, it was going to be kind of a fun, chatty piece about what it's like to be uh, autistic in Washington, kind of one of those fun insider DC stories. But then my editor, Richard Just, said, well, why should this piece exist? And I kind of, out of hubris, said, well, I think we focus too much on curing autistic people and not enough on helping them live fulfilling lives. He's like, there's your piece right there. So it was kind of like being... Uh, being egged on a little bit. So, yeah. And this article in, you know, in a way was your broader coming out as autistic. You write a lot in the book about these different moments where you sort of come out, you know, at school or at work. Um, Maybe talk about school a little bit. You know, what factors would you weigh in deciding to tell a teacher or not tell a teacher that you were autistic? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, it really comes down to, I think that when I went to university, it was almost like, when I went to, so first off, I went to community college nearby where I grew up in Southern California. I went to Chafee College, and it was, I think initially, I just wanted to do work, and I didn't want to be treated special, and I thought that asking for accommodations was so onerous that, um, you know, I was like, it, it doesn't seem like it's worth the time, but my mom was like, they're there for you, like, you should use them. So I kind of complied and that was really the way I got, you know, I did okay in school at community college. But then again, when I went to university, my feeling was, okay, I must have overcome being autistic if I, uh, if I got to university, not recognizing that the way that I got to university was by getting good grades at community college because I got accommodations. And it was almost like I didn't want people to put an asterisk to, to my success by saying, oh, well, they're disabled and they got a lot of accommodations. Uh, I didn't want that to be seen as a, as kind of an exception or I didn't want people to see my, uh, my success as somehow I didn't deserve it. It's why I'm not a fan of the term special needs because I think it's more, it sounds like, oh, this is something special. You're being treated special and not being, and not like this is a thing that helps you succeed. This is a thing that is there for a reason. I'd like I'd like to play a piece of tape for you. It's from an autistic person that I interviewed a, a couple years ago. Their name is Daniel A.U. Valencia, and they struggle with social anxiety. And the way they explain it really taps into the way that you describe this emphasis on a cure. And they told me, you know, the anxiety doesn't come from within. It comes from how other people react to them. So, for example, Daniel sometimes taps their feet or flaps their hands when they talk to people to stay calm. And here, here's what they said. There's a lot of shame around autism. There's a lot of being told that you look weird. And so that, that anxiety comes from, from being excluded, being rejected, being ridiculed for things that are just part of naturally being me. You know, it creates a cycle of self-judgment and makes anxiety worse. Eric, you write a lot about being being bullied as a child. And, yeah. you know, this this thought from Daniel reminded me of that. What what did that look like for you? And, and what have you done to heal from that? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes to this point that um, Cal Montgomery, who I interviewed in the book, uh, he told me something that stuck with me a lot for a long time. And I haven't been able to unthink it or not think about it since then. But it says that we don't know what autism looks like. We know what autism with trauma looks like. And I think that in many ways, it makes that being bullied or being uh, ostracized shapes how you move about in the world. It shapes how you 
function, it shapes how, whether you choose to stim or not in public, it shapes how you talk and how you speak and what you speak about and how you, uh, you tailor your, your cadence uh, and the and what you discuss and how you speak um, to the point that you almost put you know this is why they call it a mask you almost put on a performance for other people uh, because you're so afraid of being caught again you're so afraid of being you know singled out and what's funny is I didn't really think about that until I started hanging out with other autistic people and I let my guard down tell 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 us more about that when when did yeah. you first start doing that yeah so when i first really started writing this book i started interviewing autistic people but it really does change it really i really started to notice the change when i went to a retreat for this book i went to a retreat called uh art space in michigan it was at a uh, old jewish day camp um uh but there were almost with the exception i think of like one parent there was there were it was all autistic people there were no other neurotypicals uh neurotypical people and it blew my mind and what i realized is midway through we some of these people i'd met before but when we were not around other autistic we were, when we were not around neurotypical people we talked a little bit easier we allowed ourselves to stim and go and rock back and forth there were non-speaking autistic people, there were autistic, there were speaking autistic people, but there was no, there was this kind of general uh, esprit de corps, and there was this feeling that we were kind of, it was almost as if we went back to our home country. <laughs> we're talking in our own language, you know, and we were accepting of each other, and we were kinder to each other, and I don't think that a lot of people recognize that. So it was fascinating to go there and it's been fascinating to, even when I'm speaking in mostly autistic spaces for promoting this book, I speak and talk in a way that's very different from what I do when I'm in predominantly neurotypical spaces. We're talking with Eric Garcia about his new book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. He is a senior Washington, D.C. correspondent for The Independent and previously worked for The Washington Post, The Hill, National Journal, and Market Watch. And we want to hear from you. If you are an autistic person, what has your experience been like? Call us now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll be back shortly. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm April Dimbosky. We're talking today with Eric Garcia about his new book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. He is a senior Washington, D.C. correspondent for The Independent. Eric, now you were starting to talk about, um, you know, landing on this concept for your book about autism not being a disease that needed to be cured. Can you tell us a little bit about how this approach evolved and how has the thinking around autism changed in the last couple decades? Certainly. So the first time uh, autism is discussed in any kind of scientific uh, way is in 1911 by a man by the name of Eugen Bloiler, who's a Swiss psychiatrist. And he thought it was a symptom of schizophrenia. Later on, uh, Leo Connor in, uh, in at Johns Hopkins University, uh, you know, put out his landmark 1943 study or the 1944 study uh, called Autistic Disturbances of the Social Affect. And uh, it was during that, uh, it was during that time that uh, Autistic Disturbances of Effective Contact. And what's interesting is that it surveyed uh, nine Anglo-Saxon children and two Jewish children, and eight of those children were uh, boys and three of them were girls. And what happened was that while he said that they had, that these autistic children were born with, quote, an innate ability to form so, uh, typical social contact with people, he noticed that there, quote, there were, are very few really warm-hearted fathers and mothers of autistic children. And that German of, of an idea uh, was popularized by a man by the name of Brutal Bettelheim. And uh, he wrote in his book, The Empty Fortress, he said, I state my belief that the precipitating factor in infantile autism is the parents wish that the child did not exist. Conversely, in um, Nazi-occupied Vienna in the 1940s, Hans Asperger was uh, conducting his research on autism, uh, almost mostly on boys. And uh, he thought of autism as a much wider condition and existed on a continuum. But at the same time, he sent some of his children to, um, you know, the, uh, to, to, you know, clinic where children died, where children were basically allowed to die. Uh, even if he was not a, an official member of the Nazi party, he was at least complicit in crimes. So this was what happened to autistic people in one way or the other is they would either be sent to their death in Nazi Vienna or they would be institutionalized because people like Bruno Bettelheim said that was the best way to get them, uh, uh, you know, weaned off and cured of autism. And it wasn't until parents like Bernard Rimland and Ruth Christ Sullivan, who just died last week at the age of 97, uh, they kind of pushed back on that idea that refrigerator parents and unloving parents uh, were the cause of their children's maladies or the cause of their children's big children being disabled. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, the 1980s that the diagnostic criteria really changes. Uh, it's important to remember that autism didn't get its own diagnosis separate from schizophrenia and the diagnostic the statistical manual of mental disorders until 1980. And then in the 1980s, you also get uh, pervasive developmental disorder order not otherwise specified. Later on, get Asperger syndrome is included thanks to the research of Lorna Wing in the United Kingdom. And at the same time, you get uh, the United States passing the uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and the Americans with Disabilities Education Act. And basically what happened was uh, with those, uh, with those uh, studies 
when there was a study that came out uh, during that moment where uh, basically the House of Representatives said that for the longest time, autism had been seen as a mental condition and it was not seen as a disability. And it said that autism has suffered from an historically inaccurate identification with mental illness. And that including autism in IDEA was quote, meant to establish autism definitively as a developmental disability and not as a form of mental illness. And what that meant was that these students were now eligible for a free public, a free and public, a free appropriate public education. And as a result, what happened is that schools had to report to the federal government how many autistic students they were serving. So what did that mean? It meant that by a broadened and widened autism diagnostic criteria, combined with public policy, you saw an increase in diagnoses, even though there wasn't an increase in autistic people. And that led to people thinking that there was an autism epidemic. And that was what happened in the 1990s and the 19, in the 20, in the, in the early 2000s, when you saw this real panic about autism increasing. And that was what led to uh, the vaccine panic, in the, uh, you know, which was completely false in the 19 late 1990s and 2000s. Right. And and so this idea of needing to find a cure ended up leading to other harmful thinking, uh, other harmful thinking around autism, like needing to find someone or something to blame for causing autism. And it sounds from from your writing, parents have played a role on, on both sides of that. You sort of referenced some of these studies that blamed the parents. And now it sounds, you know, parents ended up playing a role in in the vaccine myths, too. Right. And, it's, it, you know, it's kind of that example of hurt people hurt people, right? Because for the longest time, parents had been seen as the culprits. Uh, in fact, I remember I was watching one old video when I was doing research. It was a documentary on refrigerator, on quote, it was called Refrigerator Mothers. And there was this black mother named Dorothy Groomer who was trying to get her son, um, diagnosed with autism, and this is back in the 70s or the 60s, and then they said, oh, well, you can't, your son can't be autistic because you're not a refrigerator mother, which is a combination of ableism, sexism, and racism, like I can't even imagine. Um, but then what happened is the, um, the vaccine myth allowed for parents who had been maligned and blamed for their children for so long to have some of that blame removed from them. So, so see, it's not us that are causing the autism. It's the doctors who are making uh, who are making our children autistic. Uh, so it's an example of hurt people hurt people. But the problem was, is that whether it was refrigerator parents or whether it was vaccines, it's still the underlying premise that autism is something to be avoided. And it is somehow something that should be feared. We have a parent on the line right now, Concepcion in Oakland. Hi, Concepcion. Hi, Eric, um, Mr. Garcia. Thank you so much for uh, being on, on forum oh, today. Yeah. And I wanted to um, ask you as a parent. Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, well, go ahead. Our journey. Oh, um, unfortunately, Concepcion, we're having a hard time hearing you um, with the phone connection. Uh, we'll we'll see if we can try to get you back. But it sounds like um, she wants to know a little bit about what parents can do to help their kids. Certainly. I think one of the best things you can do to help your kids is uh, find autistic adults 
And even if autistic adults might uh, be able to speak, if your kid can't speak, or if they, you know, are able to hold a job, if your kid can't hold a job, I think that those, the, I think that meeting other autistic people and autistic adults can give you a template and help you to understand what you really need to adapt and how you can make an accessible uh, world for your kid. And I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is to um, meet other, uh, is, is to, uh, you know, work with and find services that focus on trying to make autistic people on helping autistic people live whole lives instead of trying to fix the autism or curb some of their autistic traits like stimming or uh, repetitive behavior or echolalia. I think that a lot of times we think of those as or, or try to stop meltdowns rather than thinking about uh, what's causing the meltdown because I think too often we focus on the symptoms and not on what causes it or not on making uh, you know, the environment uh, adaptable. Tell us a little bit about your parents. How did they, how did they support your needs? Yeah, my parents were fantastic in a lot of ways. I think that, you know, when my mom, apparently when I found, my mom found out that I was autistic, you know, she said, how's he going to get into Stanford? Uh, mom, sorry, I went to UNC. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I think that my parents started, my sister, I have a sister, I have a sister who's 11 months younger than I am. And one of the things that I respect about my mom and my dad and my stepdad was they started from the premise that I was just as equal and valid as my sister and that our trajectories, while they may be different, they were just as worthwhile and they were worth just as much of an investment. You also interviewed a, you also interviewed a number of autistic people for your book. You traveled around the country. And um, one person you write a lot about is a student at the University of California, Berkeley, Hari uh, Srinivasan. Yes. And we actually reached out to him ahead of the show, and he sent us a comment. He said, I was diagnosed just before age three, which means most of my lived memories are as an autistic. It's been exhilarating yet exhausting. A common belief is that autistics are incapable of empathy, that we cannot relate to others. I would flip the question and ask, are neurotypicals showing empathy towards autistics? To illustrate with an example, a friend's mom was asked once on the airplane why she would bring such a child on vacation. Are autistics not deserving of vacations too? That is, please don't stereotype us in the many areas of our lives. It matters as societal attitudes influence our access to education, supports, services, funding, relationships, recreation, policy, and our very quality of life. So Hari also talks about, you know, the, the challenges uh, that he's faced, and, and you talked to him extensively about this. How, how did Hari influence your book? Hari influenced me immensely. I don't think that before I heard about him, and I heard about him from a guy by the name of John Marble, who also lives in the Bay Area. I don't. I think that for the longest time, I thought that well, neurodiversity might be for some autistic people, but there are some people who might really welcome a cure, especially if they can't speak or if they can't do things. And it wasn't until I met people like Hari who. When we gave them the right services, they have, you know, they they can excel and live incredible lives. I think that that changed my mind. And I think that it showed that neurodiversity is for everybody and that everybody deserves to be treated as a human being. And it is, um, you know, it's fascinating. It reminds me of Mel Baggs, the late Mel Baggs' words in their video, um, 
uh, in my language when they said, ironically, the, the way that I move when responding to everything around me is described as being in a world of my own. Whereas if I interact with a much more limited set of responses and only react to much more limited part of my surroundings, people claim that I am opening up the true to true interaction with the world. It's funny how our communication is biased toward neurotypicals, but people often don't make same effort, uh, you know, as, as Bag said, you know, I find it interesting that failure to learn your language is seen as a deficit, but failure to learn my language is seen as so natural that people like me are often described as mysterious and puzzling rather than admitting that it is themselves who are confused. There is almost this skewed priorities. There's almost this idea that autistic people are not deserving of good things. Uh, and it is, uh, and, and it has deleterious consequences. It has serious consequences. You also write about, you know, Hari's experience of asking for accommodations at school, which, you know, were quite different from from your experience. How how so? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's difficult. Be, I, think, I think it's difficult asking for accommodations in general. But I think that, uh, you know, there are, you know, Hari, by virtue of not being able to, of having limited speaking capacity, a lot of people will immediately think he needs accommodations, but accommodations are, of course, difficult. They're touch and go. They can be very, they can vary over time, and uh, you, you know that. And that I should say is okay. Um, and at the same time, I think that for me, asking for accommodations was I was afraid of asking for them, or I think that if um, I was worried that if I asked for them, then my professors would not. Uh, grant them or they would think that I'm looking for an excuse or I'm looking for something to get off easy. And I think that that fear dominated my life and crushed me more than I want to admit. We have a few more comments coming in. A listener tweets, I have so much to say about your autism piece that I don't know what to say. Thank you for giving a voice to the autistic community and not to the medical community, who writ large tends to pathologize autistics. Autism is not something to cure. We also have a comment from Karen. She writes, I'm a health professional and have been taught that we should always use person-first language, not say something like an autistic person, but rather a person with autism. It's been very jarring for me to hear the speaker and the host talking about autistic people and being autistic. Is this a new movement among people with autism to embrace their identity with autism and take control of a previously offensive term? Uh a little bit. I mean, I think that it's a relatively new idea. I think that for the longest time, and I want to say thank you to for, ask, for asking that question, uh, because I think for a long time, health professionals and parents preferred person-first language. But I think that over time, what, and I think that one reason why is because a lot of people thought that they didn't want people to see their disability. But I think what autistic people themselves have said is we need you to see our disability. We need you to see it as an inextricable part of ourselves. And we need you to accommodate us and we need you to accept us. Now, this is not the case with every disability community. For example, uh, the intellectual disability community prefers person-first language, which is how you can have a phrase constructed like an autistic person with an intellectual disability. You see what I just did there? I used identity first with autistic and then with an intellectual disability for the uh, for a person first. Uh, so it varies, but I think that by and large, the autistic community has preferred using identity first over time. 
Some more tweets. Lottie tweets, I've always felt very different from most of the people around me. I have no idea what that's about. But I do know that I felt most comfortable when I worked with special education kids with autism. They have skills that other people don't have. Rebecca also writes, I read a piece recently that distilled down some key mannerisms that make people uneasy, such as not making eye contact and instead looking at other parts of the person's face or looking around them. Society should be understanding and more accepting of these differences that are prevalent in persons with autism and social anxiety. We also have a caller on the line, uh, Jeff from San Francisco. Hi, Jeff. Hi, can you hear me okay? Yeah, go ahead. Hey, so I'm a, a student currently at City College of San Francisco. I'm also applying for four years, so that's why I got interested in uh, when I heard Eric on the radio. That's how I got interested in wanting to call in. Yeah. And so when I was uh, when I was in grade school, uh, I actually got heckled a lot by friends. Uh, a lot of times when uh, we would play freeze tag. Usually when I was it, and usually whenever my shoelace would come untied, everybody would literally stop and just wait for me to finish tying my shoe. And so I always felt really like as a big target towards uh, to, to everyone else. Yeah. Do you, have some, do you have some thoughts for Jeff, Eric? Yeah, I mean, I think that in a lot of ways um, – we kind of stigmatize autistic people and we stigmatize their behaviors or we pathologize them in a way that we wouldn't otherwise do with uh, neurotypical people. I mean, in the same way, we kind of pathologize or freak out if autistic people don't make eye contact when uh, and we see that, 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 oh, they might not be listening to us or not, might not be paying attention to us. Really, when I'm not making eye contact with you, that's so that I can actually listen to what you have to say. It's not so that I'm, I'm not ignoring you with that because it actually expends more, I actually expend spend more time if I'm making eye contact with you, but that I could otherwise spend uh, listening to you and responding to you. Uh, You write a lot about, um, you know, how there hasn't really been enough attention on adults. And you interviewed a number of people for your book who didn't realize until they were adults that they were autistic. And one of them that you mentioned is, is John Marble. We're coming up on a break, but can you tell us just a little bit about how he he figured out that he was autistic? Right. So he would have kind of these moments where he would think he thought he was going deaf because he was just overwhelmed and he would lose his hearing. And it wasn't until he um, told one of his colleagues and said, you know, and he said, you know, I'm kind of spinning out of work. And he was working in the Obama administration, mind you, that uh, they suggested, uh, why don't you be with Ari Emond, who at the time was uh, on the National Disability Council, and they met. And Ari was kind of the person who told him, you know, maybe you should look into being autistic because they went to a coffee shop. And... Uh, uh, Ari noticed that John was kind of overwhelmed. He's like, "Why don't we go to my office? It's a little, it's a little less overwhelming." And that was kind of the linchpin, and that was kind of the beginning of John recognizing that he might be autistic. Yeah, we're talking with Eric Garcia about his new book, "We're Not Broken: Changing the Autism Conversation." And we want to hear from you. What has your experience been if you are an autistic person with work, dating, finding housing? Call us now: eight six six seven three three six seven. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions. Forum at KQED.org. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with Eric Garcia about his new book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. Eric, you spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley sort of exploring some of what the companies there have done to recruit more people with autism. And um, some of the some of it relates to what you were talking about before we went into the break with John Marble sort of coming to a realization in his adult life that he was autistic from recognizing how overwhelmed he was in in overstimulating environments. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about Silicon Valley and and if they've done sort of broader company-wide reactions to um, adjusting the workplace. Did you find anything like that? Yeah, you know, I wasn't able to go in as deep as I would have liked to because I literally went to Silicon Valley and I went to the Bay Area like the weekend before coronavirus really hit kind of, you know, nationally. Um, but what I what I found was that many companies are focusing, I think, still on recruiting and they're not, and they're, some are like companies like Square are focusing on keeping people and retaining people or building a good environment. But I really feel that that might be the real ultimate uh, thing that that should be aspired to is while on some level we want to see better, um, uh, you know, hiring practices, what really matters is retention and making a positive environment and finding ways to foster talent and allowing people to grow in their environment, just like we do with any other group of people. So what kinds of environmental changes have you heard about? Uh, I've heard everything from, you know, allowing people to wear headphones to not having fluorescent lighting or not uh, allowing people to have strong perfumer cologne because that could be sensory overwhelming or not having open office spaces uh, or having kind of a, uh, a an open Slack chat, you know, where people can talk and be open about their issues and accommodations and being able to talk about them candidly with their managers. It's interesting because it seems like the open floor plan was was, was sort of the obsession of, of Silicon Valley that's yeah. spread through other businesses. And it's it's one of those examples of, you know, making a change to accommodate autistic people can also have a more universal impact. Um, right. For example, in the disability world, I remember learning about curb cuts that were made so people who use wheelchairs can access sidewalks. And then it turned out, other people found them useful too, like people using strollers. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly that's exactly the case. Um, so, so you know, I, I think that's the I think that's that's the perfect example. Is is this is how those um, 
those needs have been, those those needs can still be used and I, and, I, and, I, and I think about them frequently and I think that what we recognize is that neurodiversity is good for everybody because you want an environment where as many voices can be heard and included as possible. Otherwise, you're just getting a very, very limited perspective. You're getting a neurotypical perspective and not getting a uh, perspective of other people. We have a caller, um, Dina from San Francisco. What's your comment or question? Hi, yes, thank you for taking my call. Um, so in speaking about accommodations, um, my son actually attends a school that is um, pretty amazing in that um, he's being offered accommodations without really having to fight for them. Um, which I know is quite um, <laughs> the unusual circumstance. <laughs> um, however, so he tends to not want to take advantage of the accommodations. Um, so I was wondering if you had any advice on how we can support him um, in feeling more comfortable with taking, um, you know, with taking advantage of those accommodations. Because um, I think he would definitely benefit from them. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And I can say that I was a lot like your son. I didn't want to take advantage of them. I think what happens is that when you're, when you're a young, when you're a young person, you don't want anything that puts a target on your back. Like the, the gentleman who called earlier talking about freeze tag, you don't want people to think that you're different. You don't want anything that'll ostracize you or make, or will label you. But what I think you should say is that these things, and then also there's internalized ableism. There's this fear that if I take this, this means that I'm a damage or I'm failure. But what you, I think what you can and you should say is that we think that you're incredible. We think that you have this amazing capacity. And these are the things that are going to allow you to be on the same playing field and the same footing as your um, neurotypical classmates. And these are the things that are going to help you succeed because and we're doing this because we know you have the capacity to succeed. We know you are competent and we know you can do incredible things otherwise. Thank you for the call, Dina. We have another call uh, from Leah in San Luis Obispo. Hi. Hi. Thanks for taking my call today. I had a question for your guest. Um, I am the only neurotypical member of my family. My <laughs> children uh, were diagnosed this last year, and in the course of their schooling, it was necessary to diagnose them. And while we were going through the diagnosis process, it became increasingly apparent that my husband was likely on the spectrum as well, and as are several members of his family, many of his cousins and uncles and such. Um, so my husband has been diagnosed, but he's very, um, he's not really convinced of his diagnosis and yeah. it, it has really having a hard time with it. And I'm kind of wondering to what extent, I guess that matters. I, I, I would like to hear from you as to how your diagnosis has helped you sort of navigate a neurotypical, a largely neurotypical world and how yeah. it has benefited you if you're in a personal relationship or, or things like that, if you're in a romantic relationship and those kinds of things. Mm, great yeah. great uh, questions, Leah. Yeah. Go great ahead. question. And uh, much to my mom's chagrin, I'm not in a relationship. Um, 
But, uh, you know, I, I can understand why your son may be hesitant. I know a lot of people who are hesitant when they first get, you know, when I interviewed John Marble, he said initially, he's like, no, that's not me. That's not me. You know, and I think a lot of it has to do with the way that we see autism, the way that we see autism as this thing to be feared and avoided and terrified of, rather than this is something that your brain just works different. And this is a way you can navigate the world. And a lot of people, once they accept it, they recognize that it can be incredibly helpful to understand to understand ourselves. Um, I think what I would say is that if not, if you, you're not gonna, if you're not going to do this for yourself, at least do it for your kids. I think that would be the main thing I would say for parents is that if you know that your brain works this way and you know that your kid's brain works this way, this might be a way for you to connect with your children and you might have more empathy. If you accept yourself, then you're going to have more empathy for your kids and you're going to be able to understand them more. And therefore you're going to be able to advocate for your kids as much as you as a neurotypical person may want to your husband by virtue of being autistic, will know certain things that have this kind of sense that you otherwise never could have. And that will allow him to make sure that they get the accommodation to school and in college and make sure that they're okay for that they're okay with themselves. They're okay with their image as their self-image as being disabled people. It can be incredibly powerful and incredibly important. So what I would say is that if you can't do it, if you can't do it for himself, you can do it for his kids. Mm. Advice for all of us around self-acceptance. Thank you so much, Eric. Um, You write a lot in your book about um, race and gender as it relates to autism. um, In particular, you know, this stereotype that autism only affects white male children. You call this the perpetual child stereotype. Can you explain this a little bit, why why it's problematic? Yeah, I mean, I think that when you only assume that autism occurs in children, you wind up either ignoring autistic adults or you wind up permanently infantilizing them and thinking that they are incapable of holding jobs or they're incapable of having relationships. And that in and of itself can prevent them from learning about consent and what it's like to be in a healthy relationship or what it's like to be in a relationship at all. In the same way, if you conceptualize the stereotypical autistic person as a male, you're gonna ignore a lot of girls and that's why a lot of girls and women get undiagnosed. And if you, um, if your template is someone who is white, then that means that a lot of, beha- you might pathologize a lot of behavior that children of color or people of color have that are autistic. And you might think that they just have a behavior problem and that overlooks a lot of things. And that prevents a lot of autistic people from getting the services that they need and getting the acceptance more than the services, the acceptance that they need. And you also write about how children of color for those reasons are less likely to be diagnosed um, and also get, get treated differently by doctors and at schools. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times they're seen as problem children or they're misdiagnosed as having behavior disorders. Or a lot of times, even within their own communities, they're treated differently because there's not a lot of understanding about autism. It isn't necessarily that they're afraid of autism. A lot of times it's just that they don't know what it is. Um, you also, in, in, in explaining how girls are also less likely to be diagnosed than boys, you, you really lay out some interesting details about how we as a society sort of accept you know, some of these more traditionally thought of as, as female behaviors. Can you um, explain some of those and how they end up getting in the way of a diagnosis? 
Certainly. So a lot of times autistic girls who are just quiet or they're uh, reserved, well, we, we, we kind of assume that women are supposed to be quiet and reserved, right? And then uh, if, but if you're, you know, hyperlexic and you just speak a lot, then you're just seen as like, oh, you're a chatty, you're a chatty girl, or you're a chatty Kathy or whatever, uh, whatever those dolls were. Um, and it's uh, never it's never seen as, oh, well, maybe this person's autistic because, because our template of what an autistic person is is likely a boy, a lot of the typically autistic behaviors often coincide with what we expect of women and girls. So a lot of times that allows women to go invisible. And then because women are generally forced to be more accommodating and more collegial, a lot of times they might subdue themselves in a way that allows their autism to go undetected. Um, we have a, a comment from a listener. Elizabeth tweets, Temple Grandin will be speaking at City Arts and Lectures on October 18th. Can you address the significance of her story in the broader understanding of autism? Yeah, I think that Temple's influence was important because for the longest time she was somebody, you know, Oliver Sacks and a lot of people, you know, when, when her book initially came out, a lot of people thought that she was cured of her autism. But what she said is, no, I'm still autistic. It's still, you know, I still am who I am. And, you know, Oliver Sacks thought, you know, her writing, she must have had a ghostwriter until he read her science, when she wrote her first book, I think it was called Emergence. And it wasn't until he read her scientific writing that he realized, no, this is the same person. So, even though some of Temple's ideas have fallen out of fashion, uh, she was still a, a seminal figure for a lot of ways, reasons. We're talking with Eric Garcia about his new book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. You're listening to Forum. I'm April Domboski in Fermina Kim. Uh, and on this conversation, Eric, about race, um, you also talk about how we've talked about kids, but autistic adults can also face particular danger uh, when it comes to encounters with the police if they're people of color. Can you tell us maybe the story of Arnold, um, Arnaldo Rios Soto and his aide? Certainly. And there's a great podcast series about Arnaldo Rios Soto uh, by Audrey Quinn. Just look up Audrey Quinn and Arnaldo Rios and you'll find it. Um, essentially what happened was he left the facility that he was living and, and uh, he was sitting in the middle of the street and someone called the police on him and thought he had a gun when really he was just, you know, an adult, a Latino autistic male who had a toy truck and his caretaker was trying to prevent the police from apprehending him. And uh, the police shot uh, at Mr. Kinsey, who was a black man, who was his caretaker. And uh, they ultimately, um, the police argued that, oh, well, we didn't try to shoot the uh, Mr. Kinsey. They were trying to shoot Mr. Mr. Rio Soto which I think is indicative. It's, it, it's really horrifying that that could be seen as a, as a legitimate excuse that that's that, oh, it's okay because we were just trying to shoot, uh, shoot the autistic person instead of the, the black person. We have another caller, Dean in Palo Alto. Hi, um, I just wanted to get your take on uh, one thing. I, uh, I called my uh, general uh, practitioner, my doctor, uh, this is uh, from the largest healthcare provider in California. I'm not going to name the name of the, um, the hospital, but uh, basically I asked for an assessment um, and uh, the response I got was that since I am a professional, um, I have a master's degree, you know, went to college, have a wife, have kids, there's no way that I could be autistic. And then um, he denied me that assessment. And then when I contacted the mental health department, the person that does the screening, the doctor, uh, essentially uh, repeated the same exact thing, that there's no point in me getting an assessment because uh, my life or the trajectory of my life 
uh, doesn't fit um, doesn't fit the bill. Um, basically, I wouldn't have a job, couldn't hold any kind of relationships uh, if I was autistic, and uh, comments like that. So I'd like to get your take on that. Yeah, I mean, that goes to our general ableism and misconception about autism. We think that, oh, this person can't have a job or this person can't be married. But many autistic people go undetected. And it's because of our preconceived notions and our biases of what autism looks like so that you can't even get the you can't even get the um, the diagnosis. And a lot of times those diagnoses are done with children in mind. So a lot of times it still gets missed. So whenever people ask me, what do I think of self-diagnosed autistic people? I think it's more of an indictment of the psychological the psychiatry profession than it is about anything that autistic people are. And thanks so much for the call, Dean. I mean, uh, and, you know, Dean's question also sort of gets at this question of navigating the the healthcare system. And there are quite a few barriers. There are there are plenty of barriers and medical ableism is a real thing. It, It prevents a focus on it prevents people from getting it being able to navigate the healthcare system because of preconceived notions in the medical profession, and that does a disservice to autistic people as well. Eric, I wanted to ask you, you know, as a journalist, what 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 it was like for you to write. You know, your your book is reported, but it's also part memoir, and I'm I'm curious about what it was like for you to write about your own experience. Did you feel the need to be, you know, very objective about your own history? Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to be objective about my own history. And I think that what was interesting is that sometimes going back into some of my previous experiences, I think that I might have thought about them one way and then I would call my parents or call somebody to confirm that that was what happened. And no, it turned out the other way. So a lot of times, it, so I think it really forced me to be incredibly honest with myself and honest about my own shortcomings and my own failures, but also my own successes. And it also required me looking at, okay, I was able to succeed because of these larger systems around me as much as my own individual grit or whatever. I'm also curious how being autistic shapes the kind of journalist that you are. I think, it, you know, I was talking about this earlier this week. I think, uh, you know, some people say, oh, it must be a superpower or, oh, it must make it more, more difficult. It doesn't do one or the other. It just is different. So I might be more of a bag of nerves when I'm about to pick up the phone and call someone, cold call someone for the first time. But at this, in the same respect, uh, it means that I won't necessarily have that regard for social niceties and I won't use... Uh, social or I won't allow social niceties to be used as a way of obfuscating the truth in the same way it's allowed me to be just relentless and dogged when it comes to researching any kind of um, subject matter I think that's important Uh, I think that's important as well so it comes with both types of but then in the same respect it can also be very very difficult when I'm on a place like Capitol Hill where there's a lot of stimuli out there or you know this weekend I'm going to Iowa to cover a Trump rally and you know that's going to be a sensory process thing too because I'm I'm already gaming out okay how am I going to file this story while there's all this noise going on around me um and you kind of alluded to this um you write a little bit about inspiration porn what is yeah. that <laughs> Yeah, I think that inspiration porn, I have to borrow a phrase from the late Stella Young, a great disability rights advocate and activist and journalist. Uh, she said that like inspiration porn is basically those kind of stories. You know, those kind of stories like, oh, this autistic person graduated from college. Isn't that nice? Or, oh, didn't that autistic, that, that the prom queen asked this autistic person out 
to prom or my least favorite one that I've ever seen was the one where the dad took his daughter to prom because he wanted to take the daughter to prom. Uh, it's because those stories aren't actually about autistic people. They're about making neurotypical people feel good. They don't do anything to illustrate autistic people's lives. Sorry, I'm getting a little froggy about that. Oh, <laughs> Eric, it has been really lovely talking to you. It's been a, a very engaging, interesting conversation. Again, we've been talking with Eric Garcia about his new book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you. Have a great day. You're listening to Forum. I'm April Domboski. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.